Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 266. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week again, we're brought to you by author and radio show host extraordinaire Frank Key and his new anthology, Brute Beauty and Valor and Act. Oh, air, pride, plume, here, buckle. 111 essays and stories on diverse subjects including reservoirs, U-boat captains, underpants bombers, fools, brains, jelly, and Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath. All from the begetter of Hooting Yard on the Air, one of my favorite places on the internet for weirdness and hilarity. Key stories are bizarre funhouse mirrors, constantly reflecting our own world in weirdly jagged, obtuse angles. Either that or they just don't make any sense. Either way, they're super, super British in all the right ways, and I end up loving each one, even if I can't always explain why. I highly recommend both his podcast, Hooting Yard on the Air, and his new anthology, a long series of words that ends with the word buckle. Here's another excerpt to follow up last week's exciting space adventure, a story called On the Suet Siphons of Saturn by Frank Key. Captain's Log, Stardate, The Ides of March, Year Dot Plus, Redacted. I am sick of this damned log. Literally sick. Whenever I open it to scribble another entry, I am overcome by a wave of nausea. I am convinced I have a palsy or an ague even though I would be hard-pressed to define exactly what a palsy or an ague is. Were there a medical dictionary aboard the starship, I could look them up. But if ever there was a medical dictionary, it disappeared along with the doctor, von Strabinzi, a year ago today. A year, or a space year, I cannot be certain. The captain and second officer Wilmot and that rascal, Mr. Poxhaven, vanished too, leaving me to take command and to scribble in the captain's log. I was going to cross out the word captains with a big, thick, bold, indelible, black, 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 black marker pen and insert instead pursers, me being purser blot. I don't know what gave me pause unless it was the terrible shaking of my hand occasioned by the palsy. But I could barely lift the pen, so it remains the captain's log rather than the palsied purser's log. I am using a special lightweight space biro to do my scribbling. It puts no strain on my quivering, white, tiny, frozen hand. Oh yes, my hands are as tiny as those of the composer Scriabin. I wanted to compose music, delirious and ecstatic music, but instead I was sent to Starship Purser's Training Academy. There was no music there, only bleeping and whooshing and buzzing noises. 
At least it prepared me for the starship itself, where there is a constant din of bleeping and whooshing and buzzing, punctuated only by the strange gurgling sounds made by the ship's vampire, Bosun Kugat. He claims they are involuntary, his gurglings, and his apologies a little too, fulsomely for my liking. I would have him confined to the brig, were it not that he would simply melt the metal bars with his basilisk glare and escape. I am not clear precisely what kind of vampire he is, just as I am unclear about palsy and ague. Ah, God, I was not cut out for this life. I ought to be sprawled on a divan in a dasha, composing ecstatic music. Captain's Log, Stardate, Ides of March, plus one. At the time of his death in Stardate 1915, Scriabin was working on his Mysterium, of which he wrote, There will not be a single spectator. All will be participants. The work requires special people, special artists, and a completely new culture. The cast of performers includes an orchestra, a large mixed choir, an instrument with visual effects, dancers, a procession, incense, and rhythmic textural articulation. The cathedral in which it will take place will not be of one single type of stone, but will continually change with the atmosphere and motion of the Mysterium. This will be done with the aid of mists and lights, which will modify the architectural contours. He intended that the performance of his work, to be given in the foothills of the Himalayas, would last seven days and would be followed by the end of the world, with the human race replaced by nobler beings. Captain's Log, Stardate, Ides of March, plus two. Bosun Kugat confronted me at supper time yesterday and revealed that he had snuck a peek at this log. He said I ought to be using it to note pertinent details of the starship and its space voyage, rather than wittering on about Scriabin. He has whiffy oxters. I threw an aerosol can of space deodorant at him and told him to use it. I am a nobler being than Bosun Kugat. I would like to compose my own Mysterium, but there is far too much faffing about to do on this damned ship. I think we have entered the belt of Jiffy. I looked out the starboard window and saw a gas giant. Captain's Log, Stardate, Ides of March, plus three. Whether or not we were in the belt of Jiffy yesterday, we are nowhere near it now. Bosun Kugat has seized control of the starship, and we are hurtling towards Saturn at warp factor God knows what. He's locked me in the space janitor's cupboard, with only Biro and the captain's log and a flask of dandelion and burdock, and a few sticks of celery. Every now and then he comes hammering on the door and shouting questions at me, but refuses to let me out. His questions are technical ones, to which I do not always have ready answers. He wants to know if we should pass through the rings of Saturn or try to avoid them. Apparently he is going to land on the planet's surface and go in search of the suet siphons of Saturn. 
Being a vampire, he will not require a spacesuit. <laughs> what in heaven's name he wants with a suet? I have no idea. Rummaging around in the cupboard, I found a piccolo and a cowbell. I am passing the time composing a piece of delirious and ecstatic music for piccolo, cowbell, and celery sticks. Scriabin would be proud of me. At least, I like to think so. <laughs> Hail to thee, blessed Alexander Nikolaevich. Captain's Log. Stardate, Ides of March. Plus four. A couple of hours after we landed on Saturn, I heard Bosun Kugat's dainty footsteps padding along the corridor. He stopped outside the space janitor's cupboard, and the door whooshed open, and he moaned and fell, crumpled into my arms. For hours, I cradled him, mussing his filthy hair and making cooing noises into his pointy ear. I know my duty. Eventually, he gathered himself and explained that he had located the suet siphons, teeming thousands of them, all lined up in neat rows on some kind of Saturnine plane or pompous. And every single one was exhausted. Not a spit of suet could be eked from a single siphon. Do you understand what this means? He shrieked. Others have been here before us. I had to admit that this put something of a damper on our five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and civilizations, and go boldly where no man has gone before. Should we go in search of the suet? I asked. But before Bosun Kugat could reply, he was engulfed in mists and light which modified his corporeal contours. In front of my very eyes, he was transmogrified into a nobler being. I looked out of the starboard window and saw that the universe had vanished. Scriabin's mysterium had come to pass. It was the end of the world. I picked up the piccolo and cowbell and celery sticks and played a threnody. There you have it. Check out Brute Beauty and Valor and Act. Oh, air, pride, plume, here, buckle. Visit hootingyard.org and click the Buy the Book button. You'll enjoy the read, I promise. That's hootingyard.org. And as a special bonus on our Drabblecast B-Sides bonus content podcast... You knew we had one of those, right? We'll be running this week the third and final installment in this trilogy of space exploration mayhem, On the Vinegar Valves of Venus. Go to Drabblecast.org, hit the B-Sides link at the top, and subscribe if you aren't already. I think you'll enjoy. There's a nice little backlog of good stories there for you to pick up if you're a Drabblecast noob. All right, Drabble time. Drabbles or stories, exactly 100 words. Send yours into submissions at drabblecast.org. This week's comes to us from listener Lewis, and it's called Visitation Rights. 
Lewis is a history teacher in London, UK, and he didn't know what a drabble was before discovering our show, but now takes regular breaks from his work damaging young minds to try to perfect the art form. The Antichrist hated having to spend every other weekend with Satan. Things had gone sour between his mom and the devil, and the courts restricted the Dark Lord's access to the boy. Beelzebub's argument that he needed more time than that to prepare his son for the reign of hell on earth just didn't cut it with Judge Steinmer. So now he spent two weekends a month with his dad, listening to him rage infernally against the Lord God who cast him out of heaven, that self-sacrificing bastard Jesus, and Mom's new boyfriend Jeff, who ran a Hatha yoga studio. Family, can't live with them, can't live without them. Well, at least one of them. The one with the uterus, in most cases. This week we've got a real treat for you. We've gone and done it again, commissioned a great writer to once again clamp down and heave forth from the sopping loins of her creativity a new and beautiful pinkish-blue bundle of veiny, screeching short fiction, just for you, thrashing momentarily amongst the warm birthing butters and viscous amniotic gumbo before making its way with an unsettling agility up your shoulders and straight into your ears. We bring you Little Grace of the House of Death, an original piece by Yuji Foster, commissioned by the Drabblecast. Yuji calls home a mildly haunted, fey-infested house in Metro Atlanta that she shares with her husband, Matthew. After receiving her master's degree in psychology, she retired from academia to pen flights of fancy. She also edits legislation for the Georgia General Assembly, which from time to time she suspects is another venture into flights of fancy. Yuji received the 2009 Nebula Award for her novelette, Sinner, Baker, Fabulist Priest, Red Mask, Black Mask, Gentleman, Beast. The 2011 Drabblecast People's Choice Award for Best Story for her story, The Wish of the Demon Actor Magic, and the 2002 Phobos Award. Her fiction's also been translated into eight languages and nominated for the Hugo and British Science Fiction Association Awards. Visit Yuji at yujifoster.com for links and more information. Also, we're changing things up a bit this week. We've got a guest producer. Special thanks to Brian Lincoln of the Full Cast Podcast for arranging the full cast on this one and weaving everything together. Brian's a regular contributing producer at the Doonstief Audio Fiction Magazine and is a part of the team producing HG World, a zombie audio drama. He also talks about production regularly at the Full Cast Podcast along with Abigail Hilton. Our story this week is narrated by Brian with other voice contributions from Starla Hutchton, Veronica Giguere, Pat Crane, and yours truly. Fun stuff. So without further ado, we bring you Little Grace of the House of Death by Eugene Foster. Little Grace of the House of Death by Eugene Foster. The niece of King Death had not yet chosen a name. She was the only daughter and youngest child of Death's sister, Merciful Grace, and everyone still called her by her baby name, Little Grace. She wandered the gray meadows and shadowed woods of Death's country, drifting among the skeleton trees, 
picking the austere wildflowers and collecting iridescent beetle carapaces to wear as jewels in her white smoke hair. Sometimes, detritus from the warm lands found their way to death's pastures, a single buttery silver rose, a vivid picture book, a patchwork doll with mismatched eyes. And Little Grace collected these curiosities, admiring their vibrant colors and luxurious textures, so unlike the pallid landscapes and pinched starkness indigenous to death, and mused upon the lives that had touched and lost them. Little Grace had three brothers, violence, danger, and harm. Violence was the oldest, and he took the most and least interest in her, being a volatile flibberty gibbet. One day he might be the doting big brother, teaching her swordplay and ballistics and the myriad forms of martial combat and the next he would fly into a temper, lashing out indiscriminately with fists and tongue, leaving her bruised, bewildered, and tearful. As a toddling babe, little Grace had learned to recognize the moods of violence, and also to keep her own temper tightly reined. She never threw tantrums, or yelled when her brother was near, for who could ever match the fury of violence? And if she remained calm in the face of his bluster and storm, violence often gentled, his abuse petering off before she suffered more than a black eye or bloody nose. And while he would never humble himself with words of apology, he sometimes brought her gifts from the warm lands, a pair of spider-spun gloves, a pink shell that whispered in her ear, a gilded silver flute, as proxy expressions of remorse. Short attention span and mercurial temper notwithstanding, little Grace didn't mind violence. He was honest in his own way and well-intentioned, so long as one took pains not to provoke him. Her second brother, Danger, was rarely at home, perpetually gallivanting about on some daring adventure or amorous conquest. When Little Grace was six, he told her of the beautiful firebird that descended once a century to make its nest in the grove of silica trees in the Forbidden Garden. He regaled her with tales of the bird's vermilion bright plumage and jeweled eyes, the sunrise glory of its wings, and the golden bell of its voice and with a secretive smile, Danger confided he'd seen both Firebird and Silica Grove, for he was on intimate terms with the gardener's daughter. The next night, when Danger donned his courting finery, Little Grace snuck out behind him. She followed him past the yellow springs, through the eternal gateway, and into the warm lands where the forbidden garden grew. And after Danger had slipped inside the tiny cottage, nestled amongst the black silica trees, Little Grace scaled the tallest trunk and set her eyes upon the horizon. Not an hour after the moon crested the star-strewn sky and began its reluctant ascent, the firebird came. It was indeed as magnificent as her brother had described, each feather gilded in sunburst hues of crimson and gold. As it winged its way to the very tree she perched in, it seemed to ignite the air. But what her brother hadn't told her was how the firebird kindles the silica tree it roosts in and that fired silica turns to glass. And while Little Grace was a child of the house of death, hardy, immortal stock, she still felt pain and fear. The firebird's heat scorched her hands, and she grew dizzy and faint with terror. Trapped at the top of the glass tree, the branches treacherously sharp and slick, Little Grace sobbed and wailed for help. Fresh from his dalliance with the gardener's daughter, Danger heard Little Grace and approached the base of her tree. But when she entreated him to come rescue her, 
He laughed and said, <laughs> That is not my nature, little sister. The consequences of chasing peril are hazard and adversity. But was not the firebird as glorious as I said? And with a jaunty wave, he pivoted on his heel and left. She howled curses at his retreating back until her throat was ragged. Then she dried her eyes, steeled her nerve, and began the treacherous descent. Glass leaves sliced her blistered palms and slashed her feet to ribbons until the translucent bark ran scarlet with blood. Still so high she dared not peer down, trembling and weak with pain, she lost her grip on a blood-slick branch and fell, crashing through gleaming branches and tinkling shards into darkness. The plummet proved unequivocally fatal. As per established routine, all who die in the warmlands are shunted off to death's country. Fortunately, King Death, being not immune to nepotism, was considerate when it came to the funeral arrangements of his relations. Little Grace awakened, groaning in her own bed. The countless lacerations and terrible burns she'd endured had knit and healed mostly, but she still ached from remembered agony, not to mention the dozen or so jagged slivers still embedded in her flesh. She furiously plucked these free, but some had worked their way under the skin, and it was days before they'd all germinated, sprouting tiny silica seedlings she must uproot with tweezers and gritted teeth. Little Grace vowed never again to succumb to dangerous temptation. No matter how seductive his tales, or how wondrous the marvels he described, she wouldn't let him entice her to foolhardy recklessness. But she couldn't bring herself to hate danger either, he was capricious and feckless, but also charming and full of laughter, never spiteful or malicious. And, after all, it was because of him she'd gotten to see the firebird. However, while danger was innocent of malice, her brother Harm fed on it. At first, his games with little Grace were straightforward, stinging thorns in her shoes, a hidden needle in her bread, salt spilled in her eyes. In time, she learned to don masks of composure and silence. Deprived of her tears and cries of distress, she hoped Harm would tire of sporting with her and leave her alone. But instead of growing bored and seeking elsewhere for sport, Harm devised new games to play. He took to spying on her recreations, and once he gleaned what she held dear, he systematically destroyed it. He rent apart the patchwork doll and left its pristine head nestled accusingly on her pillow. The rosebush she'd nurtured from a single bud he infected with a stinking rot that corrupted all but the dewy, buttery silver petals. And he stole her picture book and led her on a trail of torn pages to where he'd mired it in filth. Harm's attentions turned little Grace furtive. She tried eluding Harm and stashing her treasures in secret hideaways. But in the end, all her vigilance and subterfuge came to naught. Harm always discovered and ransacked her tiny hordes, leaving ruin and wreckage behind. So little Grace learned to askew affection and interest. Why invest her heart in anything her brother would only take away? In this manner, little Grace grew from girl to maiden in death's country, cultivating calmness, prudence, and detachment. When little Grace became of a naming age, merciful Grace invited her daughter to attend her on her errands to the warm lands in hopes she might be inspired to choose her name. Little Grace loved watching her mother work, whisking away suffering and sorrow with a touch or word. Merciful Grace's clientry were the sick and infirm, 
delirious men racked by fever and weary crones with creased parchment faces. Her mother's clients never flailed in shrieks as violences did, or soiled themselves in fear like when danger took them, or cursed and fought like those harm visited. Merciful grace gave a compassionate, gentle death to all, rich or poor, man or woman, regardless of status or position. One day her mother came to administer the final breath of an old man, who time had turned brittle and gray as ash. As merciful grace spent to kiss his brow, little grace peeked into his soul and was shocked to find he'd raped and poisoned eight boys for sport in his youth. Disgusted, she turned away. How was it right that such a despicable man could receive the same tender conclusion as the good and virtuous did? When little grace asked her mother this, her mother only said, Mercy does not judge. After that, little Grace ceased accompanying Mercy to the Warmlands. But her sojourns there had reacquainted her with her childhood fascination. When she could dodge harm's scrutiny, she wandered the valleys where death's borders abutted the Warmlands, drawn to the bustle and business of the living. Surely, she reasoned, it would provide harm no fodder if she merely observed, dispassionate, so long as she wasn't foolish enough to become involved. It was easy to stay aloof from mortal folk. Most would not see her, their minds recoiling from her kinship with death. Still, they sensed her nearness, and, unnerved, scurried away without knowing exactly why. But the birds and beasts didn't shun her. The primitive honesty of their animal brains accepted her, knew her to be as futile to deny or flee as sky or wind or rain. Some even sought her out the smaller, timid creatures who had an intimate acquaintance with death's scent, being the target of everyone's hunger. These ones snuffled her hands and sat at her feet, recognizing her as not a predator. Despite herself, little Grace became captivated by these, their busy noses and delicate paws, but she didn't dare do more than watch, expressionless, when they starved, fell to voracious predators, or sickened and died for fear that harm might be piqued by her interest and afflict them with something worse. There was one particularly charming family of creatures who seemed to thrive in the twilight hollows near death. They grew cat-sized, although stouter and less tall, and had snowy white faces, pointed and elegant as a fox's but with dainty round ears. Their dark liquid eyes were well suited to the gloaming grays of dusk and dawn, and their dexterous paws could unearth plump earthworms or harvest persimmons and hickory nuts with equal facility. Most fine of all, they had luxurious, bushy tails that fluffed out in magnificent display when they were excited or happy. Little Grace called them white faces, and her resolve to remain detached was sorely tested when a mama whiteface, desperate to protect her litter of kits, came against a hungry wildcat. Still, little Grace stood by, impassive, as the unfair match concluded as it must, harshly and inevitably. She disregarded, too, the bitter ache in her chest when a hawk swooped upon Mama's babies and stole one away in its merciless talons. Bereft and helpless, the orphaned kits were as doomed without their mother as they'd been in the wildcat's path, and little Grace did nothing when a snake slithered boldly into their den to strangle another although her eyes burned like embers. But when the last kit began to cry, cold, starving, and alone, she couldn't harden her heart further. She darted across death's borders and rescued the mewling kit from its lonely nest, 
She cradled it in her arms, and it quieted and nestled into her embrace, comforted by the thudding beat of her heart. She marveled at its softness and its strength, this tiny living thing, and gazed into its trusting black eyes. In that moment, simply, quietly, and without fanfare, the rigid shell she'd forged against harm's malice shattered and fell away, and something hotter and brighter than even a firebird's wing sprang up to replace it. I promise to defend and safeguard you, and keep you from harm, little white face, she whispered fierce and low. I swear this by blood and birthright, as a daughter of the house of death. Whiteface sneezed solemnly and fell asleep. Vigilant against harm, little Grace crept home with the small animal tucked snugly into a fold of her sleeve and brought him fresh eggs and bread sopped in honeyed milk to dine upon. When he grew stronger, she searched the deepest, darkest woods until she found a secluded bower straddling the warm lands in death's country to hide him, protected from marauding animals by the proximity of death, but still quick enough to nurture life. She taught him to hunt the beetles that crept among the moldering leaves, to find the tart green berries that grew wild, and most importantly of all, to stay silent and hidden until she called. Under her attention and care, Whiteface thrived, growing bigger and bolder with each passing day. And under his attention, an unstinting adoration, Little Grace gained proficiency in the most elusive lesson, one her mother and brothers had failed to instruct her in, Happiness. Content, Little Grace began to muse upon the neglected issue of her name, contemplating the sounds of charity, clemency, and succor. Until a day came when soot-black wings darkened the ashen sky, one of King Death's ravens bearing official tidings. A proclamation on a bone-white page declared that King Death had taken a new bride from the warm lands, and there was to be a splendid ball to celebrate their gladful union. Of course, attendance by death's kin was a foregone presumption. To refuse was unthinkable, an insult upon the honor of the king himself. Danger was summoned home from his current wild endeavor, and a flurry of ready-making commenced, a gift commissioned, formal raiment exhumed and aired, fittings and alterations scheduled. In all the furor, little Grace was hard-pressed to steal a moment away. But at last, on a pretext of posy-picking, she dashed away to Whiteface's bower. In the bleached shadows of the tangled canopy, she sang, Come out, Whiteface! Come out! Come out! Immediately, Whiteface burst forth, yipping with joy, the plume of his tail waving gaily behind him. Little Grace kneeled to embrace him, laughing as he wriggled and laved her face with kisses. She gathered him into her lap, indulgent as he plundered her pockets for the three wine-dark plums she'd brought him. Now listen, my silly, greedy one, she said. I'm obliged to go to my uncle's palace for some daft ball, but you needn't fret or whine. I'll return soon enough. Whiteface listened, muzzle sticky and plum-stained, his eyes rapt. You must be brave and stay safe and hidden, and when next I come, I'll bring you sweetmeats and cake from the king's palace. Whiteface snuffled mournfully and yawned. Little Grace hugged him tight. I'll miss you, my darling, my best white face. With many backward looks, she hastened home. The next morning, a carriage drawn by phantom steeds with grim, leaden eyes came to deliver merciful Grace and her children to the ball. 
Death's Palace of Bone had been hung with silver banners and garlands made of brilliantly colored paper flowers. Real flowers, even the rugged ones that grew in the land of death, would not have withstood the concentrated presence of the gathered aristocracy. There, in venomous green and sickly blistered red, promenaded Auntie Plague and Uncle Famine and their strident brood, cousins Blight, Dementia, Corruption, Meager, and the youngest, Taint. There stood Uncle War and his lover, Wrath, forever querulous and bickering. And making their entrance with much ceremony and grandeur, the Clan of Ruin, Count Desolation and Countess Despair, Lord Defile and his Lady Violet, and the incestuous twins, Malady and Misery, their unfortunate daughter in tow, the silent, lovey Pathos. In contrast to her dour and regal in-laws, King Death's bride was golden-haired and rosy-cheeked, bright and full of laughter. But Little Grace knew, as did all those assembled, that the roses in her cheeks would soon fade and her laughter dwindle to silence. That was the inevitable and tragic fate of those brought out of the warmlands to marry into the house of death. Like a half-forgotten dream, Little Grace recalled her poor father, doomed by Mercy's love. When Little Grace was an infant, he'd been a hearty, vigorous man with twinkling eyes and a booming voice. But by the time she could walk and run, he'd turned gaunt and ashen, a translucent shadow of a man. And before she was old enough to chase after danger and firebirds, he'd faded to a weightless husk and drifted free of death's country to wash upon the shores of oblivion, regardless of whatever heartbreak might lie waiting tomorrow. Today was for feasting and fetting. Death had spared no expense. The banquet table groaned, straining beneath brimming terrines of cockatrice soup, heaped bowls of jelly kappa, and mountainous platters of spiced wyvern. Psychopomp servers dashed from guest to guest, refilling flutes of topaz wine and flagons of pitchy beer. Between courses they served delicate fairy ices and luminous cheeses to refresh the palate. When all of Death's guests were gorged replete, musicians in impish masks brought forth ivory pipes, onyx drums, and sitars strung with gold to entice them to dance. The exquisite bride twirled in Death's arms, lithe and nimble as a hind. And even Little Grace didn't mind when Cousin Meager invited her to accompany him for a brisk alamand. She did mind, however, when Harm, with an almost affectionate smirk, snatched up her hand for a waltz, stomping smartly on her toes at every turning. Twilight sank to evening, evening to night, and night tallied the hours of witch, rat, and wolf on its steady path to morning. Still Death's Court danced on. Little Grace, sore-footed and weary, retreated to an obscure cranny and waited for the ball to end. Head nodding and eyes heavy, Little Grace couldn't find any ease. Something gnawed at her, a persistent apprehension, like a small animal with an overlarge bone. The imagery was none so reminiscent of Whiteface, and an unbidden smile curved her lips. Immediately she schooled her features blank and glanced about for harm, anxious he might have witnessed her unguarded levity. But while she noticed her mother chatting with Auntie Plague, Brother Violence by the punch bowl, obviously deep in his cups, and Danger flirting with Pathos, she couldn't spy harm anywhere. Jolted alert, Little Grace tried to recall when last she'd seen her brother. Could it be so long ago as their unpleasant waltz? 
Surely he was just strolling the grounds, maybe with Cousin Dementia in tow. But no. There was Dementia giggling with those dimwits miasma and dismal. With hard-clenching ice-cold fear, the fragments of her unease fixed together. The casual dearth of attention harm had paid her, the relative ease with which she'd been able to elude him, the negligible, almost nostalgic spite of their waltz, all to deceive her into a misguided sense of complacency. Little Grace raced to death's stables, startling awake a psychopomp groom. She ignored his sputtered protests at the hour and irregularity for she'd already noted the single, conspicuously vacant stall and the subtler emblems of harm's passage the fractured latch, the fleck of blood from a whip, and the lingering wide-eyed unease of the remaining death steeds. Little Grace flung open the nearest stall and laid her hand on the flinching animal's neck. I am harm, sister, she said. But I will not hurt you. For mercy's sake, will you bear me? The animal's frantic eyes calmed, and it kneeled for her to mount. It was a wild, lunatic race, a night ride without saddle or bridle. The death steed's chest pumped a furnace wind bellows as it plunged headlong, and Little Grace's mouth was dry as dust, half choked by wind-torn hair. But when prudence might have counseled a saner pace, Little Grace glimpsed a tendril of smoke rising from Whiteface's sanctuary, silhouetted against the silvering horizon. And there, a red-tinged glow where there should have been only deepest umbra. Faster! Please! Oh, faster! She cried. Her mount's pace doubled, leaving caution abandoned and wheezing behind them. Coming upon the hidden bower, the glow resolved to gouts of fire, a holocaust pyre. And outlined against the hellish glare stood the unmistakable figure of harm, holding aloft a struggling, snarling shape by its long, plumy tail. No! She screamed. Harm, stop! Her brother raised startled eyes to the rider thundering down. Surprise turned to gloating as he recognized her, the fire igniting his eyes to unholy incandescence. Grinning, he hurled Whiteface into the red-hot heart of the conflagration. Little Grace shrieked, a wordless howl of despair. Death steed and rider barreled into harm, knocking him rolling beneath the driving hooves. But he was not Little Grace's objective. She flung herself into the fire, her skin sizzled and baked, her hair ignited as the flames raked her with burning claws. But Little Grace disregarded the terrible pain, long proficient by now in the art of suffering. She reached blistered fingers deep into the fire's gullet and dragged out the scorching weight of white face before rolling them free of the pyre. Unmindful of her own seared flesh, she swathed him in her smoking hem until the eager flames guttered out. My darling, I'm here, she crooned, rocking the small ravaged body in her arms, kissing the tattered ears and stroking the crisp fur. Where his fur had been glossy white, it was now blackened and smoky gray, and his magnificent tail was gone and incinerated to a whip-like length of burned naked flesh. None of that mattered. He was still beautiful to her. Aren't you glad to see me? She entreated. Won't you bark a welcome for me and rummage my pockets for sweets? But though she pleaded and begged, Whiteface didn't stir, lost to death's still silence. I promised to keep you safe from harm. Little Grace's voice fractured and broke, choked by a nod of unshed, unsheddable tears, her eyes cauterized dry by the fire. Deprived of even that small solace, 
grief and rage swelled, hotter than any pyre and more bitter than a sea of tears. She lifted her red-rimmed eyes to where harm was now rising, shaken but unrepentant. I swore an oath on the house of death. Her words rang out, a discordant bell clapped by sharpened steel. And I will not be forsworn. She reached again into the fire and snatched out a jagged burning brand. Before he could guess her intent, she hurled it at her brother. It flew as violence had taught her to aim it, straight and true. The brand's sputtering flames quenched, lodged in her brother's chest, the column of his spine ruptured by the lance of fire-transformed glass. Quirk of chance or fate, her weapon had been born from silica, sprouted and plucked from her own flesh years past. Harm fell like a puppet with its strings all cut. Clutching Whiteface like a broken doll to her breast, Little Grace approached him. Stupid kit, Harm snarled. When I mend these small harms, I'll teach you suffering to make all I've done before seem like mercy. Little Grace dragged the glass spike free. I think you'll be a while longer mending. As Harm shrieked in renewed agony, she drove it down again, completely severing the injured vertebrae. As for your teachings, I've outgrown the role of your long-suffering pupil. She ripped the silica lance through his flesh, opening harm in a gaping line from neck to groin. Do you think to cow me? He gasped. You cannot bend me to be other than my nature. Not at all. I'm merely acquainting you with my nature, as you've seemingly forgotten my pedigree, sister to you and our so gentle brothers. As blood of your blood, kin of your flesh, you've provoked me to danger and violence. She cupped her fingers in harm's fountaining blood and laved the hot spill over Whiteface's body. Now shush, dear brother, for I am incited to harm. With her bare hands, she tore out Harm's tongue. As the sky lightened in the east, she proceeded to hollow him out, tearing free liver and kidneys, unspooling intestine, and rending away handfuls of spongy lung. She worked in silence, attentive to the labored rhythm of Harm's groans. Grisly task done to her satisfaction, she tucked Whiteface into the macabre nest she'd carved and folded the flaps of Harm's rent flesh over him. Then she fisted her hand in Harm's hair and locked his pain-racked eyes with hers. Have you ever died? Did you know we eternal children of death can expire in the warm lands? She smiled. Of course, Brother Harm would know that. And he might recall, too, how we are resurrected in our beds come morning. But are you aware that we also resurrect within our flesh any embedded remainders of our lethal adventures? Incidentally, I chose this particular place because of its dual proximity to death and life, and thus its dual affinity. She stared until she saw horrified comprehension darken his eyes. I think after this night you understand I've chosen a new name. She loosed her hold. So before you think to trouble me or mine again, consider what you may invite. She plunged her hand into Harm's chest and ruptured his juttering heart. At his final ragged breath, she stood, bathed in the muddy rays of dawn. Thus you die, Brother Harm. I'll see you by and by tomorrow. 
When Harm awakened, his sister stood by his bed with a glinting scalpel at the ready. He didn't resist as she carved him open and extracted the gore-covered animal from his body. Only grimaced and gritted his teeth. Liberated, Whiteface wriggled and gave a low bark of joy. But while he was indeed reborn, he was not unscathed. Healed and hale, he nevertheless bore the scars of his demise, his pink naked tail and his blackened soot-gray coat, although his face was again spotlessly white. He also recalled his killer. Sighting harm, Whiteface transformed into a snarling demon beast, black lips curled from sharp yellow teeth, eyes wild with rage. Abomination, Harm whispered, cringing away. And so he did not see the last pang of sorrow he would ever deliver his sister. King Death came to collect his two death steeds, and found Mercy's daughter packing a journeyer's satchel. You've chosen the name, my niece, he said. It was a statement, not a question. But she answered him anyway. I have, uncle. I am... Vengeance. Will that name not be difficult for someone as tender-hearted as you to bear? She paused to meet her uncle's intent gaze. It is a soft heart that suits vengeance best. Who needs avenging more than the small and meek, huddled fearful before the predator's jaws? Who better to punish the wicked and cruel than one who weeps for pity's sake and mourns lost innocence? Death regarded the small, fierce animal, hissing at him in misplaced defiance at his niece's feet. By wresting this creature from my jurisdiction, you've consigned it to an endless existence straddling death and life, yet never truly knowing either. I know. Vengeance bent to stroke the bristling creature in question. Nevertheless, he is mine and I will cherish him forever. Won't you reconsider? We undying and eternal are bound and anchored by our names. To be truly immortal, even an animal must have a name. Wouldn't it be kinder, a mercy to let it go, unnamed and forgotten? Allow it to fade, and I will personally escort it to the peaceful shores of oblivion. Vengeance fixed death with a scowl. Uncle, pray do not mistake me for my mother. And anyway, I've already named him. There will be no fading or forgetting, and assuredly no mercy for him or me. The king looked closer and saw, indeed, his niece had anticipated him. He sighed. It was a good name, a true name the animal bore. So be it, he said. And death gave vengeance and shame his blessings. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. If you did, consider throwing a donation into the hat via the PayPal slash credit debit card links on our webpage, travelcast.org. Greatly appreciated. 
Remember, folks, this was an original Drabblecast commission. It's the support of listeners just like yourself that deliver slick and thrashing stories like this one from the tattered, gaping birth canals of a writer's mind. And speaking of tiny, shrieking, jelly-spattered new life, Christmas is almost here, isn't it? And guess what? Next week, author Tim Pratt's back again with another original story for our special Merry Christmas slash We're All Going to Die in Less Than a Week holiday episode. It's a goodie, and you're only going to find it here on the Drabblecast, so be sure not to miss that. Alright folks, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week, Phineas QP, with this one here. Zombies will always leave you alone if they think you're one of them. And that's why I've been eating people, Your Honor. Good one. 100 character stories, not counting spaces. We call them twabbles, and we hold a weekly contest in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org, where the Drabblecast editors pick their favorite each week and post it out on our Twitter feed, which is at the Drabblecast, by the way, if you want to follow us. It's fun and quick. Give it a shot. You might have next week's winner trapped up there in your noggin even this second. So that's our show, folks. Remember, Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it. But feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you pick up our show. Blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Caroline Parkinson. Check her out at carolineparkinson.blogspot.com. So, our program is brought to you by myself, Nikki Drayden, Managing Editor, our Submissions Editor, Nathan Lee, Editor-at-Large, Matthew Bay, our Art Director, Bo Kyer, and with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, David Steffen, Jake Webb, and Jonathan McNeil. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you, it's a soft heart that suits vengeance best. upside down. Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink, and the bartender shouts last round. An hour ago this place was loaded, and noise filled the room like the smoke. And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass. Words were all slurred when spoke. Yes, words were all slurred when...